You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Yes, coming to you from Atlanta, where we are attending the DUI DLA Fall Seminar, 10th Anniversary Seminar. Quite a party last night. You missed a lot of it. Yep, I did miss a lot of it, because I was working. (laughs) Well, we're in a different time zone. I was drinking the free drinks. I guess they're not free, because we paid to come to the party, but... Uh, the food was incredible. Uh, the uh, prime rib that they had was just out of this world delicious. It was so tender. It was so wonderful. Um, it, uh, it was a great party. There was uh, um, a photo booth set up. Uh, there was a DJ. We were on a deck outside, and it was warm, like 24 degrees Celsius. Um, just a lovely night. Got to talk to a lot of people I enjoy seeing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you had that experience, but well, I did not. Well, by the time you showed up, I was ready to go to bed. So yeah. I left and went to my room, which is ever so slightly noisier than yours. However, it's noisy here, folks, yeah. because it's uh, the Literally. conference is in a okay. hotel that overlooks the Atlanta Braves ballpark. Mm-hmm. And every day there are games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a big party out here. It's a real... Uh, you know, they really set it up to figure out how to extract money from people mm-hmm. who are Braves fans. And um, and how to trap people who are staying in this hotel. Hotel with noise yeah. uh, that goes on till about 10.30 each night. No, like 1.30. Well, 10.30, the really bad noise from the game. Yeah. And then the other noise goes on till 1.30. Yes. So I thought we'd start this week, Paul, with an update on one of our stories that we talked about recently. And that is the case of the end drivers, the two end drivers who were speeding up the cut. You and I had talked about this in the context of why are we seeing so many end drivers driving so badly all the time. I was on Mike Smith's show to talk about it. And I think you were the one they wanted and you were away. Um, But uh, yeah, we see a lot of excessive tickets going to end drivers. And one of the things that I pointed out, which nobody seems to want to like to, nobody wants to acknowledge maybe because it's not part of the narrative, yeah. is that it's usually one time that people get it. It's pretty rare that somebody gets two excessives. And so these drivers have now been issued five-month driving suspensions. You might be saying, but Kyla, this only happened on September 13th. How is it that they've paid their tickets and now the Superintendent of Motor Vehicles is taking action to prohibit them less than two weeks later. So yeah, the whole process takes longer than that. If you're convicted of it in court or you paid your ticket even, uh, it still takes three weeks before they, you know. Three weeks, more like three months. Well, they send out a letter, a notice of intent. You've got 21 days from the date of the letter to reply. Yep. But in any event, so five-month driving prohibition, it came out in the news, um, and uh, I saw you replying to tweets about it. Yes, so... This is what's known as a high-risk driving incident report that the police will submit based on the high-risk driving (laughs) incident, not not exactly not implicit in the title. Um, And they rely on this high-risk driving for the purposes of 
uh, sending a report where the police set out what their evidence is, the information that they have, and then an adjudicator at Road Safety BC or ICDC reads the officer's report and then writes their own view of the officer's report in a letter to the driver and says, this is what we've been told. You don't actually get a copy of the police evidence. This is what we've been told. Here's the hearsay. Now you're prohibited from driving. There's no due process. There's no right to be heard. There's no ability to review the actual evidence. There's no ability to challenge the allegations of the police officer. You are suspended, even if your ticket's in dispute, and you're maintaining your innocence by disputing that ticket. Now, you can dispute that driving prohibition after the fact. After yes, it's been imposed. After it's been imposed. Yeah. You can get some of the evidence. You can uh, dispute the driving prohibition, but the system is rigged. But you have broken. no idea what you're getting. It's 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 broken, which results in it being feeling like it's being rigged. It's not actually rigged, but it is broken. It's broken. Um, it's not a great way to deal with this, but it, you could see the need for it if there's a pattern of behavior. Uh, there's a you know, when there's a when there's a, a person is posing a danger to the public on a regular occasion. I still think, though, that you should have the right to be heard before suspension is imposed and you should have the right to review all of the evidence. And if your ticket is in dispute, you should benefit from the presumption of innocence. There's case law on this as far as it relates to the superintendent considering certain driving prohibition actions. I'm sure there is, but this has been in, uh, in had its legislative effect for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, long before I set up Acumen Law, we had this, mm-hmm. uh, and I dealt with these cases. So often they were on the North Shore. Just because uh, we've been doing it for <laughs> for this whole time doesn't mean that it makes it right. No, but you know I was successful in having driving prohibitions massively shortened or eliminated um and you know i could you know as i say i could see it for the protection of the public in circumstances where there was a pattern of behavior but if it's a one-off to me it's a huge problem because this is just the police selecting this one that they are going to write in for and there's lots of people every day in british columbia get tickets for excessive speeding um, and they don't get a dangerous, high-risk uh, incident report sent into the superintendent's office. It's the ones where the police feel it's noteworthy. Here, it's two bikes, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was two motorcycles, and the third continued down the road. Um. So, yeah, I have concerns. People are obviously... <laughs> the, the thing that is getting me about my tweets, basically expressing my opinion that this is a violation of the presumption of innocence, and I don't feel very good about it, and you should have the right at least to have your case reviewed before the suspension is imposed, at the very least to provide your version of events if you have a defense or if you have something you want to say, some justification. But whatever. The So there's that. Um, but the people that are jumping on me are like, you supported freezing the bank accounts of the convoy protesters, so you're a hypocrite. Oh, my gosh. Those bank accounts were frozen through a legal process, that people had the ability to challenge and after they were found to have been in violation of an order requiring them to leave. Also, 
um, it was money that was donated for the purpose of people being able to continue to commit a criminal offense. At least that was the position the government took. Yeah, yeah. And also, the bank account freezes are temporary, and there were ways to apply to get funds if you needed them to pay things like rent and mortgages. Well, and that money was supposed to be used for the purpose of their ongoing occupation of Ottawa, which was an illegal occupation, no longer a protest. Yes. So there's lots of differences to it, and I'm not enthusiastic about um, this sort of um, process where people don't get a right to challenge it right away, but the money seizure could be challenged in days in court. Um, and I suppose this could be as well. Oh. There is a procedure here. To challenge it in court, and then you have to go through a BC Supreme Court scheduling process, exactly. which will take you months. You exactly. Can, you can book your hearing in two months. Um, the second Tuesday in October, you can call in and try and get your court date two months from now. But if your suspension is five months, you're, you've already served two-thirds of it. And even the writing-in process that you mentioned, they have a backlog. And that backlog is going to take Six you... Six to eight weeks. Actually, right now, the turnaround time is about three months. Yeah. So uh, the um, convoy money that was uh, seized, I think you probably could have got into court within a week on yep. something like that in Ontario and BC, getting into court to challenge your driving prohibition uh, that served on you without any notice. Um, you're not getting into court for six months, so the driving prohibition is going to be over. And the court has ruled in previous cases that there really is no remedy to a wrongly issued driving prohibition, where, when it comes to this money that was seized, if the court ruled that the money was improperly seized, they could sue for damages. Mm -hmm. So, uh, different procedure, different process. It's not hypocrisy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you just have to think it through a little bit. Not everything is related to the convoy. Yeah. Now... <laughs> Do you know people still on Twitter just incidentally post screenshots of a tweet I wrote in like April 2020 when somebody was hosting an illegal gathering in my neighborhood and I walked down the alley and made a video about it? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I didn't even like like show anybody. But they're like, look what you did. I'm like, I called out bad behavior in a pandemic. Yes. <laughs> Um, they screenshot it like it's something they're going to use against me. It's just bizarre to me that these people would not have any, like, connection to their society that they would recognize that there's things you have to, to accept in your society for a short period of time that are hardly an intrusion, really, um, in your life for a short period of time to protect the public and to protect the seniors and the people who have, mm -hmm. have, uh, have uh, underlying health conditions and so forth. I mean, it's just the selfishness of it is what really gets me. Yeah. How can so many people be so selfish? All right. Now, we always talk about on this podcast every time we record from a DUI DLA seminar about the awesome things that we're learning. And I wanted to talk with you about a study that one of the presenters yesterday referenced in their report that I think is very interesting, particularly as it pertains to Canadian law. Yes. So um, I know uh, I can see it on your laptop there, the study that you just pulled <laughs> up. Um, so, I mean, when cannabis was uh, legalized in Canada, 
of course, we had all of those people who opposed it, who said the sky was going to fall um, and that uh, that uh, there'd be everybody driving around uh, having used cannabis and that we would have a, a carnage on the roads, basically. If we've already got alcohol-impaired drivers, now we're going to have cannabis-impaired drivers. And my counter to that every time was, um, you, you think people have not been using cannabis in British Columbia for the last 40 years? I mean, they, 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 there will is probably not a whole lot more use of cannabis post-legalization. It's just that people are buying it from lawful sources. Pretty much. Um, and so, there, you know, I, I can't say that there's more. I certainly have not used cannabis um, more necessarily. I've not used it much more either. No, I mean, very little. I'm surprised. Yeah. I, usually, I use a lot more CBD products since legalization just because they're easier to get and I can have confidence that they have a low or no THC concentration. And there's a broader range of products available. I've used some drops and rubs and things like oh, that. I really like, like those like Quattro CBD drinks that have like 2% THC and you just get like a little bit of a THC buzz, but you don't, you don't really, it's kind of. Point is that it hasn't, hasn't been a crisis on the road, but one yeah. of the things that we have in British Columbia and Canada is that we use standardized field sobriety testing to try and screen for people who have used cannabis and are potentially impaired in their ability to drive as a result of cannabis. Now, standardized field sobriety tests have never been something that has has been um, accepted outside of Canada for the purpose of determining whether somebody is impaired in their ability to drive by cannabis. Yes. In fact, it's been specifically ruled out as something that you can't rely on in the rest of the world. But they've never really done like an actual peer-reviewed, validated, randomized study with placebos to make sure that it's not effective. Until now. And so now we do have a study. Yes. So this is a randomized clinical trial. 184 people who were either given THC or a placebo. And then they were put through the SFST. And the officers, law enforcement, classified 81% and 49.2% respectively as FST impaired and suspected that 99.2% of FST impaired participants received THC. And they also used a driving simulator at the same time. So... A big, big problem. And this, this study is published in the Journal of American Medicine. Uh, it is by Thomas Marcotte, Anya Umlauf, and David Grilati, um, a PhD, a Master's of Science, and a medical doctor. It's new. It's from August, August of this year. Yeah. So. Evaluation of field sobriety tests for identifying drivers under the influence of cannabis. So they looked at, and it was double-blinded, uh, parallel randomized, like all the procedures that NHTSA has never used <laughs> to right. validate their their stuff or well, government. Even, even they have backed away from yeah. it. You know, at one point they were suggesting that it had this, yeah, that you could uh, suss people out with these tests, but now they've backed away from it. It's just in Canada now that we're still using it. <laughs> yeah. Hard so, to believe, you know, how, how sort of inbred our ideas can be that we won't look outside of our border. We'll take look outside of our border to take the test, but we won't look at outside of our border to recognize that 
some of these things are big problems. Yeah. So 121 people received THC in some form. They had two different types of THC dose going on. Um, and 63% per people received the placebo. So 98 people in the THC group were correctly identified as having had THC. 98 of 121, which means they missed 33? No. Something like that. Yeah. They missed a lot. And they they picked 20, 20. 31 out of 63 people who had the placebo as being THC impaired. Well, they were looking for it, right? right. They're also looking but for it, too. 50, roughly 50% of the sober people they evaluated, they were like, nah, you fucked up. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Now, that's, of course, just relying on the tests, right? So standardized field sobriety tests, um, very quickly walking through it. You've got walk and turn, one leg stand. Uh, you've got nystagmus, uh, horizontal gaze nystagmus, which is a fancy word for twitching of the eye when you put your eyes out looking to the side. Uh -huh. um, and, um, you know, as I say, those things don't really tell you anything about whether or not a person's impaired. It's got nothing to do with driving. Yeah. yeah. Nothing and to they, do with driving. And they, because they compared it to a driving simulator, what they eventually, the determination, the conclusion that they reached was that highly trained officers administering the test correctly are pretty good at identifying somebody impaired by THC based on the test and driving behavior. But, but <laughs> the tests are not good to actually determine somebody's impairment because the, this is the what it says, the high rate at which the participants receiving placebo failed to adequately perform the FSTs and the high frequency that poor performance was suspected to be due to THC impairment suggests that the FSTs, absent other indicators, may be insufficient to denote THC-specific impairment in drivers. Which is important. Why, Paul? Well, how, how how would you feel about being arrested, dragged back to a detachment, uh, have to undergo a bunch more tests, which you fail, like you failed this one. They, they've assumed that you're guilty, right? You yeah. go through the DRE and you're there at the police detachment for two hours <laughs> and you fail that. Yeah. And, and then they make you pee. Because let's, let's be clear, the tests that you do on the SFST... And the tests that you do on the DRE overlap. You repeat the SFST. Basically, you repeat the SFST and then they... Plus, they take some blood pressures and some pulses. Sure, and they grope you in the dark and look at your eyes. And um, the uh, and, and you're there for hours, like hours out of your life. And then you're charged, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they send off your urine. And they hope, hope, hope that your urine comes back with the same thing the officer guessed you have in your system mm -hmm. and if he does magically he or she it's almost always a he guess what's in your system and they come back and that's in your urine then bing 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 they made a right guess um but if you're there for hours and they don't get something well i mean who knows what happens in the lab well they just dry lab it right that's what happens in some u.s states yes <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's bad. And, you know, it just tells us that, like, a couple things. One, the technology does not exist effectively enough yet 
for us to be policing cannabis impaired driving enforcement the way that we do? Well, as I predicted a long time ago, everybody has pretty much given up on their cannabis breath testers. Yeah. All of the cannabis breath tester companies, as far as I can tell, that were small companies trying to do it, were trying to get investors to invest in it. And they look like they're some sort of to me, it's, fraudulent investor pod it's the, thing. the Theranos of cannabis breath testing. Exactly. Um, and the big companies. We can we we can take an extremely small sample of your breath and determine whether or not you're impaired by cannabis. Yeah. That well, was my Elizabeth Holmes impersonation cool. for those who don't know. Um, and, it had a um, face and everything to go along with it. it would have been and great. the big companies like Drager said no. But this, the, you don't exhale THC like you do alcohol from your breath. There's no, there's, <laughs> it's just not something that you can gauge that way. Um, technology might exist down the road, but I mean, we're talking a long way down the road. And so nobody has produced a cannabis breath tester. 2018 was when they were all out there frantically trying to get investors to invest money. And I suppose the people who had set those things up probably got investors to invest a bunch of money. And I bet everybody lost their money. But look at what police do. Like this this study basically came to the conclusion that police suck administering the tests. But police are out there jumping to all sorts of conclusions. There was a story recently in, in the real Toronto news that a man was recently charged with like cannabis impaired driving. And the only thing the officer saw was that he had a joint tucked behind his ear. Yes. So um, the police were looking for the boogeyman. Yeah, they were waiting the, for the sky. Oh, man, he's got, a, he's got a joint tucked behind his ear. I probably smell some cannabis. He must be impaired. And then you perform a test. And you interpret the results. A subjective physical test. That's the thing, and it is all subjective, and you're detained as you're going through all of this. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the rest of the studies that looked at impairment by cannabis concluded that cannabis drivers, drivers who were under the influence of cannabis for the most part, if anything, drove too carefully because they were all concerned. They all thought, man, I'm fucked up. I better drive really carefully. Um, and that was probably the biggest risk was people, for example... Um, you know, not knowing when it's safe to turn because they think they've got to wait and wait and wait and wait. Uh -huh. Um, and, uh, maybe giving too much distance and slamming on the brakes too early. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the whole sky is falling thing, um, is gone. And so it, if the conservatives are ever elected, uh, in, uh, federally, then people have to stand up to make sure that cannabis isn't re, uh, re-criminalized. <laughs> Because this is not nearly the threat that it was, and I suspect, um, you know, I, I think I can say the same for uh, for mushrooms, uh, not nearly the threat that we've been told over the years by these vested interests that uh, have done their best to try and vilify these products for racist reasons, largely, um, and classist reasons. All right, Paul. Yes. It's time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. 
Published by LexisNexis, Cross-Examination the Pinpoint Method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. And what do we have? This one might actually win a record in our podcast for the youngest ridiculous driver of the week. Okay, yeah, I sent you this one. I don't remember the facts of it, but it was pretty good. Yes, so this is a 10-year-old boy from... Excellent. You guessed it, Florida, uh, who decided that he and his 11-year-old sister would run away from home. There might be good reasons. There might you know, be I remember reasons. when I was 10, I had pretty good reasons that I thought of, you know, considered it. The reasons in this case, the very good reasons, were the girl had been upset, she'd been misbehaving, and her mother punished her with the cruel act of taking away her electronic devices. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So that punishment. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the, the, police, the doesn't matter what the crime is, that the punishment's police, fair. The police did conduct an investigation of the home and determined that there was like no abuse going on. Okay. That this was sure. literally the kids cocked this plan to run away from home. And they didn't just, you know, like pack their belongings into a bandana and tie it to a stick and sling it over their shoulder and walk out the front door. No, no, no. They stole their mother's car. And they didn't just steal their mother's car. They drove it 200 miles. That's 320 kilometers, folks. <laughs> they drove it for over three hours. 200 miles is a long way. And on the highways in Florida, right? Like, we talked about that last week. 10-year-old Florida boy with his 11-year-old sister <laughs> drive 320 kilometers. Yeah. Driving oh, yeah. to, driving to, they're going to California. Going to California, baby, I'm going, I'm gone. Yep. Little John Lee Hooker there for you folks. Yeah. And the poor, the poor kids had got stopped. The police thought that they were stopping like some car thieves who'd abducted children. They pull the car over. They order the occupants out at gunpoint. And who gets Get out, out of the, the driver's car. seat? And the funniest thing, though, to me is Florida. Because the 10 and 11-year-old who stole the car, the officers asked the mom whether she wanted to press charges against her children. Yes, um, this is a ridiculous thing uh, in the United States. I'll tell you, we are ten-year-old. In some respects, in Canada, we are so smug about our system, and uh, in other respects, in Canada, we have good reason to be smug about our system that we don't do that. But again, yeah. if a conservative government's ever elected, then we'll start charging children. We'll start charging <laughs> ten and eleven-year-olds for their wrongs. Their... Rather than taking away their electronic <laughs> yeah. devices, will I mean, like honestly, like press charges against your kid for taking your car? You're just happy your kid's home. Well, yeah. Did they make the kid drive the car home? I wonder how they got the car back home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In BC, that child would be charged for sure, though, with failing to produce his driver's license. Yep. Section twenty-four of the Motor Vehicle Act. You'd have a hundred and twenty-one dollar fine, probably something along that line. Because the, um, not just the driver, but the person who's in charge of the vehicle must, uh, must identify themselves, identify the registered owner. Um, but yeah, he didn't have a driver's license. Anyway, I don't think I need to think that one through. That is a good, ridiculous driver. Yeah. 
So that's our podcast. Thanks for tuning in to us all the way from Atlanta. We have to end this recording early because the Braves game is going to start and the noise will prevent us from recording. If you need to reach us related to a driving law issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. (laughs) 